This reading from John 8 describes a woman's brush with greatness, an encounter with Jesus in a very unexpected way. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his fingers. When they kept questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard again to go away one at a time, began to go away again one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. Well, today, today, hello, today, as we wrap up this series, uh, a brush with greatness. I hope that one thing has become really evident uh, as you've progressed through these weeks, as these various encounters that people had with Jesus. We've been talking about them for three weeks, and this one thing I hope has gotten really clear. No one meets Jesus and responds apathetically toward him. Like, that seems to be the case no matter who they are or what's going on. It's like there's two general options, though. People break down into two different camps. One, people are either sort of magnetically drawn towards Jesus, and then they're profoundly changed by him, or camp number two, they are intensely repelled by him and utterly offended by who Jesus is. There's just not much middle ground with Jesus. That's what you get the more you spend time studying his life and the people and the effect that he had on people as he interacted with them. So I want to say this. If you're new to Gateway or maybe new to the Bible, uh, first of all, I'm really glad that you're here and you're totally welcome as is. You don't have to try to act like you know more than you do, anything like that. We say around here, no perfect people allowed. But I do want to let you know, and I think I should be probably honest with you up front as it talks about, as it relates to Jesus. If your response to what you do know of Jesus has been somewhat, somewhat apathetic or maybe indifferent, then I would suggest there's a lot more for you to know. Because that's not how people who really understood and, and interacted with Jesus ever responded toward him. And here's the thing, even as you're new here, I can't promise what side of the fence that you're really going to land on uh, as it relates to Jesus. But I pray and hope and would invite you to keep kind of an open heart and mind as you learn more of who he is. Now, here's the thing, though. If you've been around Gateway, maybe for a long time, and you've been kind of in and around things here... And your response to Jesus could be categorized as like a casual one, then I'm going to be equally honest with you for a minute, okay? There is likely something keeping you from seeing him for who he really is. If you can have a casual response to Jesus, then there's probably something in the way. I say that because a brush with greatness, the brush with greatness of who Jesus is, when you really encounter him, that strikes down into the human heart and it demands a response, even if you don't know much of who he is. 
Case in point, uh, I recently uh, picked up my five-year-old son, Emmett, uh, from daycare, and the teacher sort of caught me afterwards and relayed a story to me. Uh, they said they were sitting all around, so Emmett's five, I think he was about four years old at the time, they were sitting around this little you know, preschool table, uh, hanging out, they were having a snack or something like that, and Emmett who I've shared a few stories about Emmett. Uh, Emmett's kind of like the high energy, like, like we're gonna go you know, pedal to the metal all the way full on wherever he goes. He's sitting at this table with everybody and then all of a sudden he sort of like drops his food and he says, a guy died at my church. And like all these little four-year-old eyes sort of like swing over at him and they're like, oh, you know, kind of like, it's t- you know, like the teacher's like, what did you say? Totally caught off guard. And Emmett goes, a guy, he died at my church. And like now all the little kids are starting to feel uncomfortable and, and the teacher's like, hey, Emmett, I, I don't know what you're talking about. We're not going to talk about that right here, okay? He goes, no, he did. It's okay, though. He came back to life. <laughs> and it was like right after Easter, so the teacher's like, wait a minute, Emmett, are you talking about Jesus? <laughs> Emmett goes, yeah, I think that was his name. That's the pastor's kid. I hope you feel better about your parenting skills. (laughs) Now, here's the thing. This brush with greatness that this woman has in John chapter 8 comes swiftly and suddenly. I'm betting you she didn't know Jesus' name that well either, all right? She just was suddenly in the middle of this scenario. And as you get into this story, you realize you're given very little warning about this moment that happens and the context of which it occurs. Jesus is basically going along, he's talking, he's teaching with people, and then there's this huge interruption. I'll pick it up and kind of bring you right back in to this story. It says, at dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, teacher, This woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, this really strange and and supremely awkward moment happens all in a big rush around Jesus. He's doing his thing, and all of a sudden, bam, there's a crowd, there's this woman, there's this accusation, and suddenly it is like a buzz, and everybody is paying attention and all this. And it's really easy, I would imagine, to get caught up in this. I mean, it's like, you ever been caught off guard in something and suddenly you're kind of like, you're just in it and you're not really thinking about it anymore? It would have been really easy for Jesus and everybody around him to get sort of caught up in this moment. But a thoughtful person would stop and try to ask some questions about this really odd situation that has suddenly just happened to him. And honestly, just kind of as a total aside, if you don't re- like ask questions as you're reading the Bible, if you're not asking questions and kind of like, now why this and all that, I think you're missing so much of what's going on. I think the Bible really invites your questions, not afraid of questions. In fact, I think you start to really see what's happening the more you'll ask now what and why and what's going on and why did this happen? So, you know, kind of taking that to heart, question number one, here's a question I'll throw at you as you're reading this text. How did she get caught in the act? That's, it sort of is like a, that's a valid question, I think. What, what happened here? What's going on? Well, in the events leading up to this moment in John chapter eight, it helps to get a little backstory on a Jewish sect called the Pharisees. Pharisees, they had gotten locked into a heated feud with Jesus. If you were here last week, we talked about Saul, a rather famous Pharisee, and how uh, really contentious the Pharisees were with Jesus. They saw themselves as guardians of true Judaism, right? That's, that's who they were. And Jesus' growing popularity with the people 
was really threatening to their power base. Like, it's like, this is not going to go well for us. They're listening to him more than they're listening to us. In fact, in the moments leading up to this story, in John chapter 7, they're at this big, huge religious festival that everybody was present at, and Jesus steps up in an undeniable way and invites people to become his followers. Like, he steals the show, so to speak. And the Pharisees, obviously, this would have provoked a lot of jealousy in them, and a fair amount of hostility is now aimed at Jesus in this. So in their jealousy, they devise a plan, a really clever one at that, to try and get Jesus to stumble over his own words, to do so publicly uh, at the same time, so that they would have something to accuse him of and ruin his reputation. Rather than sort of like smearing him directly, they're going to let Jesus smear himself. That was their whole plan. Let him do the work. It's amazing. You really can't underestimate the power that, of how toxic and how dangerous envy and jealousy can be within a group. Like that's exactly what's happened here. It's that. It is something as seemingly simple as envy and jealousy that sort of ferments on the inside and drives a group of respected Jewish religious leaders to go find a woman in the midst of an immoral sexual act And if that wasn't embarrassing enough, they immediately then take her in front of an entire crowd gathered around Jesus' teaching. And they did all that just to prove how bad Jesus was. Really? Really. But you can't blame the whole thing on the Pharisees either. That's obviously their deal and they're making a big show of the whole thing. But this woman had a part to play in this too. I mean, she was guilty of what she was accused of. There's actually no debate in the passage about that. Caught in the act is caught in the act. But the thing about sin, and really any sin, not just adultery, but any sin, is that getting caught is actually just the result of countless smaller decisions that were made before the moment where you get caught. See, there is a backstory to every sin that we are a part of or that we get caught in. Makes you wonder, what's this woman's backstory? We don't get a lot. You can try to read between the lines a little bit. Maybe at some point, a small crack opened up in her character. She made a a small decision. It probably seemed too small to even be concerned about at the time, but it was overlooked. And over time, as more decisions were made, that crack became a chasm. Perhaps a thousand small choices created the rift between the person God created her to be and the version of herself that was now standing there on the street in front of this crowd. Perhaps you have your own chasm between who you were intended to be and who you've become over time. I think each of us have a backstory of these decisions that seem justified in the moment, right? A little lie here or there didn't seem to harm anybody. Or, you know, sort of a pattern of excess in some areas. It could be food. It could be drink. Maybe for you, it's romance novels. For others of you, it's pornography. And it's just, you know, it's this thing, this small decision. It's not that big a deal. Or maybe what started as just, you know, bitterness and outrage and unforgiveness has sort of lingered now for years and years and years. The words we speak, the things we text, that no one else knows about. All these things. There's just these small little decisions that sort of widen this chasm a little bit more. We each have a back story. 
And the truth is we don't really know this woman's backstory, but all we do know is that in this humiliating moment, she now bears the full weight of a hidden life made public. John chapter eight goes on, it says, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, okay, if you're thinking about this again, uh, you're asking questions. Question number two, why was this such a clever trap? Why was it a trap? Well, primarily it was such a clever trap because there are layers to this trap. I don't know if you remember a fantastic movie that came out several years ago called Inception. Uh, You know Inception, the whole premise of the movie is that it's a dream within a dream within a dream within a dream. Like that's how the whole thing plays out. This is a trap within a trap within a trap within a trap. Like there's just layers to this trap. And at first you you might just blow past them. Here's layer number one. First, they knew Jesus was a strong proponent of the law of Moses. He respected God's word on this. In Matthew chapter five, this is Jesus talking. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. He's upholding the scriptures, all right? Or in Luke chapter 16, Jesus saying again, it is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Jesus is saying, when it comes to God's word, don't drop a comma, don't drop a period, don't drop a semicolon. Like it's all the way that it's really meant to be. But one of the parts of the law that Jesus would have known very well and that the Pharisees knew very well was Deuteronomy chapter 22. This is sort of Moses' original instructions to the people of Israel. And it explicitly states that getting caught in the act of adultery is a capital offense in their culture. This is death penalty stuff. There, right there, in print. You couldn't miss it. So is this compassionate and merciful Jesus Is he going to follow what God's word says when the heat is on and the public eye is on him? They are trying to corner him into his, you know, convictions about the scripture. But that's not all. There's another layer to this trap. They're also trying to trap him politically. Because while the Jewish law says the death penalty is a fitting punishment for what this woman has done, the Roman law said only Romans have the ability to ascribe the death penalty to somebody. And so currently, Rome is the the biggest power there in Israel. So is Jesus, and how he applies this here, is he gonna risk subverting the government? How many people in the crowd is he gonna alienate by picking Jews or Romans? Like, he is in the middle of a political debate now. Depends on, and that's exactly what they're trying to do. But there's one more insidious layer to this trap that the Pharisees are throwing at him. They are trying to get him to, they're trying to force him to choose between truth and grace. It's a much bigger concept, truth. He clearly upholds the scriptures. This is obviously what's been going on. Is he gonna uphold publicly or contradict the truth? But then there's also grace. Jesus was obviously known for his compassion and kindness. You see that throughout the scriptures. And so to suddenly hand out such a harsh judgment against this woman would seem to contradict his own character. So the Pharisees think they have him. You gotta realize they are smug on this one, right? They're like, all right, Jesus, what's it gonna be? Jews or Romans? Real justice or are you gonna turn a blind eye here? Truth or grace? They have him publicly. 
And it's interesting though, just as a quick aside, ironically, I think far too often we set similar traps for ourselves. We kind of lean one way or the other. Some of us would say, all you need is grace, you know? Just more grace. God's not really concerned with the decisions you make or the things you do, what you believe, all that stuff. All you need is grace. But to say that dodges that God is the spirit of truth, not the version of truth that I am most comfortable with. But also, you know, you can fall to the other side. Others of us would say, all you need is uncompromising truth, right? You need law and you need to adhere to that law in all that you do. But if you say that, then you're swinging to the other side and you're completely missing this heart of compassion and mercy that marks who Jesus is. And really, if you read the Bible, it drives God. It's like the, it's the driver behind the whole biblical story. So what does Jesus do? In this attempt at religious and political you know, entrapment, what's he really gonna do? John chapter eight. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. This is classic Jesus, all right? Like, like so, so they're like, you know what, Jesus, we've got you. You got two options. Is it this or this, this or this, this or this, two options. And Jesus is like, uh, two options, huh, guys? What about the one where I write on the ground with my finger now? Like, <laughs> it's amazing. I love that. He's just like, what? Like, he just throws this entire thing out and throws the whole crowd into confusion. He doesn't fall for the trap for one second. In fact, he introduces an entire new dynamic into a really tense situation. Now, here's the thing. He's down there writing on the ground. A lot of speculation has been made about what was he writing? And honestly, if you want to go research this, you can spend an entire afternoon at a library discovering what people guess that he was writing. But here's the truth. We don't know what he was writing because the biblical author doesn't tell us. But here's what we do know. In this first first brush with greatness that this woman has with Jesus, she discovers this. Jesus dignifies this woman. So how does writing in the dust do that again? Good question. Think about it. When this woman is thrown before the crowd, she is most likely naked. She is definitely morally and emotionally exposed before this entire crowd, and all eyes are locked on her. That's how this whole thing starts. But when the Pharisees ask this question, suddenly all the eyes move from her to Jesus. So what does he do? Well, the first thing he does is he diverts his eyes from her. He's not gonna add to the shame that she feels. He diverts his eyes and begins writing on the dust in the ground. So what do you think happens to the crowd? You know, they're all there. They've been sitting there with Jesus. What's he gonna say? What's he, gonna, what's he writing? What's going on? Like, what is he doing there? Suddenly, guess where their eyes are? On Jesus, on the ground. They are not on the woman anymore. He dignifies her in the middle of a horrible experience. But that's not all he's doing. Jesus offers another way. He doesn't fall for the either or option, this binary one or option number one or option number two. Jesus sidesteps their trap and he refuses to allow another human being's humiliation to be used to make a religious or political point. He refuses to choose between grace and truth. He doesn't just say, come on, guys, I think you're blowing this a little bit out of proportion, don't you think? Just let her go. He doesn't do that. But then again, he doesn't say, are you serious? You caught her in the act? Well, you know, punishment's just. You gotta go ahead and carry it out. 
He offers a completely different way. And what he does is he offers the same standard that the accusers are applying to her. John 8 says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped and wrote, down, and, and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away, one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus says one sentence and then doesn't say anything else. Why? Because he doesn't have to. It's an incredible scene, though. Their trap for Jesus evaporates, and suddenly they are the ones standing in it. They're standing in the trap that they made. Can you imagine the hypocrisy that they would run into every time their hands started to tighten on that rock? Like, this, like, and like I'm going to do this. And every time you're just sort of, it's like smacking back in your face. Let those of you who are without sin be the first to throw a stone. So much so that they eventually release their grip on the rock and just drop them. And they just walk away, one after another. It's amazing. The Pharisees came hoping to convict Jesus. And instead, the Pharisees are the ones walking away convicted. And we're left with this moment where suddenly this woman realizes she is now the only one standing there with Jesus. And there she stands. She's completely exposed. She is completely vulnerable before God himself. There's no hiding. There's no denying what's going on in her life. There is nowhere to hide. She is just there, totally vulnerable before Jesus. So what's he gonna do now? Is this, is now, is this when the hammer falls? You gonna throw the book at me now? You gonna, is he gonna guilt her for putting him in such a horrible spot here? John chapter eight says, Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. So many questions. Question, like a third question I'll offer to you though is how does Jesus engage the vulnerable? How does he approach them? Well, first, he forgives. He forgives. Neither do I condemn you. And this, you've got to catch this, though. This is not just some sort of pleasant gesture to her to make her feel better in the moment. Forgiveness always costs someone something. Always. To release her from the debt that she rightly owes God because of the choices she's made Jesus has already computed the cost. And he knows that by being crucified in the very near future, following this moment, he is going to pay dearly for all the sin that she was carrying with her. So he forgives her. He knows exactly what the cost is, and he forgives her. But he doesn't just forgive her and then leave her there. He does something else. He invites how does he respond to the vulnerable? He invites. He says to her, go now and leave your life of sin. He is inviting her into a life of freedom. 
not just forgiving and then stuck living in the same old patterns she's been living in. She is having a true brush with greatness and has been pulled into it. She's been given a window into a whole new potential life that she could have. She does not have to go back to the same old life, back to the same old sins, back to the same backstory, the same wounds, the same miserable cycle that led her to this moment. And the same Jesus that has the power to forgive and erase her sin certainly has the power to open the door for a brand new life for her. The invitation to her was on the table. He invites her. And friends, you and I, we are given the same invitation today. Friends, I don't know your backstory, but I know the outline because I know mine. This story of this woman, in a sense, it is all of our stories. We have all done things that we are ashamed of, things that we regret, things that have led us down a path to become a kind of person that we never intended to be. Now, I don't know if you've been caught in that. If you have, you know how horrible of a feeling it is and how truly terrifying it is to watch the ripple effect of your hidden choices have a very public effect on people that you care about. But ultimately, it doesn't really matter what another human being knows because God is fully aware. He hasn't missed a thing. In a very real way, whether you know it or care about it, you are vulnerable, known by God, and in many ways, guilty, just like this woman on the street. There's truth to some of the things that we have done. And while he is most certainly the God of truth, he is just as much the God of grace. But will you come into the light of both? Will you own the truth about yourself, the sin, the chasm, all that, and receive grace for yourself into that place. Until you're willing to honestly stand vulnerably before God and own that truth, grace means very little to you. But grace finds its home in the truth. Jesus has no desire to condemn you either. I think a lot of us live in fear of what God might say to us. And Jesus' recorded words on the case to a guilty woman were, neither do I condemn you. And as he spoke to her, you gotta remember the rocks, they're like laying in the street all around her. It was like physical evidence. She was free. She's free to go. Those stones were rightly reserved for her, but they had been freely surrendered. And friends, to kind of bring this home, as you walked in today, you were given a rock and a marker. The rock you hold in your hand is meant to physically represent the unseen things that would condemn or shame you in life. Perhaps because indeed you have been guilty of some things. But condemnation and shame is not what Jesus is here for. That's not the reason that he brings this up. He knows the price of forgiveness and he has offered it to you freely. His death and resurrection are proof that he is trustworthy with the debts you owe to God. But perhaps for you, your greatest threat to freedom 
is not all the other people because everybody else has walked away, so to speak. And Jesus himself doesn't condemn you. Perhaps you are your greatest threat to freedom because you will not release the rocks. All the while, the invitation to a new life is being offered to you. You can only receive that invitation with open hands. Let the rocks go. Let them fall away so that you can receive the invitation. As this band, as the band plays this next song, I want to invite you to grab that Sharpie and the rock that you were given and try to put words to the places of condemnation, shame, guilt that perhaps you've tried to hide, but it's known to God and you have felt the effects of it. And I want you to try to be as specific as you can be to write them there on that rock so that you can leave them here with Jesus. You can trust him on this one, okay? He's not gonna dodge the truth, but at the same time, he's not going to skimp on grace. Take this moment and write whatever you need to on those rocks. And then after the song, I'm gonna show you, you're gonna have a chance on the way out to release them, to drop them on the way out. But during this song, here in this moment, just stay put and listen. Listen to your own heart for perhaps the choices you need to make about what's in front of you. But most of all, listen to God because he's here and eager for you to walk out of this room lighter into a true brush with greatness.